we should all just be carrying ribbons around, shouldn't we? Life would be a lot better if we all just had ribbons. Maybe we'll get enough for everyone, and then next week at Sunday, you're compulsory, you have to wear ribbons. Spirit would break out, that's it. Like every, there it is. Shabba show. Um, Cool. Hey, uh, well, we are going to keep moving forward in our series. If you are here today, you are brave because uh, you're dropping in the midst of a relatively intense series. <laughs> um, as a church, we are walking through the book of Revelation, um, which is one of the most complicated and difficult books that the church has wrestled with throughout the ages. And uh, the approach that we're taking here, and my hope is that Every week, we're just trying to ground it in Jesus and hopefully create this book as a one that you can read again and not be terrified, but actually see Jesus through it, and that can reflect a lot of life and meaning for you. So if you're with us for the first time, you should be all right. We'll ground it in Jesus again. Um, but where we are in the story is uh, we finished with the seven churches. John wrote all these letters to these seven churches, which give context. And then right after that, we went to this heavenly throne room scene where we saw God the Father seated on the throne, surrounded by these creatures that are fantastical and magical looking, and then elders around that. And it was this huge sense where Revelation was telling us God is in control of all things at all times, even in the midst of a Roman empire that did not look like it, God was actually in control. But God, the Father, he held the scroll and no one could read it. The scroll represented his will for all of humanity and no one could understand it until they heard the sound of a lion of the tribe of Judah approaching. And John turns and he looks and he sees a slain lamb. And we understood that only Jesus, the crucified Jesus, is the only one who can reveal the will of the Father to us. And so Jesus comes and he takes the scroll and he begins to open it. And last week, uh, we looked at the four horsemen of the apocalypse. That was fun, eh? Um, as these seals open, it unleashes each one of these angels who comes on horses. And what each one of these angels do is they progressively show that the Roman Empire that everyone thought was amazing and was going to last forever, that a lot of people were willing to put their hope and their faith and their trust in, these angels show actually that Rome like every other empire throughout human history, can fall in an instant. But God is in control. We heard the voice of the martyrs who've been slain under Roman oppression crying out, God, how long? And then as the sixth seal is open, everything started falling apart. It was crazy. The earth started shaking. Mountains started moving. Islands were picked up from their place, and people were terrified. The kings of the earth, the slaves, the free, they ran into the mountains and cried out, mountains fall on us, hide us from the wrath of the lamb, which we also realized is super like an oxymoron, the wrath of the lamb. Nah, like it just doesn't make sense. And then they finish with the sentence of like, who can stand? Who can stand against the wrath of the lamb? And so what we're feeling is it's been building, eh? Started with a throne room, then we see Jesus, and then the seals, and the seals are getting bigger and bigger, and it's climactic. It feels like the end of a movie where you're like, oh man, this is, it finished with this massive cliffhanger. What it feels like is it feels like, hopefully this will work, huh? Feels like Thanos just showed up. Anyone seen the new Avengers film? You know that moment when Thanos showed up and you're like, oh no, it's about to go down. That's the feeling that we're getting in Revelation. Or if you're not an Avengers fan, um, throwing it back, Independence Day, 
this is the moment when Bill Pullman gets up there and says, <clears throat> good morning, <clears throat> good morning. And he does the best speech of movie history because they're about to go smash some aliens. Huge climactic feel. Or maybe you're not an Independence Day fan. This is like when Russell shows up to fight the Commodore, like the Emperor. Huge climactic moment and you're like, what is about to happen? And last week we finished with this huge cliffhanger. Everything is falling apart. Everything is shaking. And this one word echoes out, who can stand? Who can stand as God approaches? And so with that, let us listen to our text for today. As I say every time, engage with this, imagine it, picture it in your mind, pay attention to what sticks out, pay attention to what feelings it brings up within you. Huge building moment leading to this. Just pause Spotify on the data computer. <laughs> Revelation chapter 7. There you go. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed. A hundred and forty-four thousand from all the tribes of Israel. From the tribe of Judah... 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands and they cried out in a loud voice salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb all the angels were standing round the throne and round the elders and the four living creatures they fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God saying Amen Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation 
they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Pretty epic, eh? What, um, again, like we do this every week, what stuck out to you? What, what feelings were raised as you heard that script? Particularly hearing what we've just come from, landing in this, what stuck out to you from that? Yeah, yeah. Them? You just like? <laughs> Carl just likes his voice, which, fair enough, homeboy's got a rad voice. Yep, what else stuck out? Huh? Hope. Massive hope. Yep, down at the back. Yeah, totally. 144,000. What is going on there? Revelation uses numbers in crazy weird ways that we don't know what to do with. Yep, great question. What else stuck out? 12,000 from each 12 tribes. Yeah, 12,000s from these 12 tribes of Israel. Uh-huh. Anything else? Yeah. So cool, eh? So cool. This is one of the most influential texts in our Bible. Like, this has informed songs, theology. People have gone on this all the time. Um, and it's incredible. So what's fascinating to me is that um, in the context of this passage, it's, it's the contrast between what we did last week and what we find this week. We finished last week with all the earth trembling and shaking like it's about to go down. We're about to have the big final fight. And what, what happens? What do we find? Everything stops. Everything. After this, I saw four angels that stand on the four corners of the earth, and they hold back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or the sea or on any tree. It's still. Everything stops. It's like this impending judgment that everybody thought was going to happen. Maybe God was just going to finally unleash his wrath and just smite all the evildoers. But instead, it subverts our expectations. And instead of God coming and just decimating everything, everything stops. And what do we hear? A message of hope in the midst of their difficulty. So what we find here... In Revelation 2, it says, Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, and having the seal of the living God, he called out in a loud voice to the four angels who'd be given power to harm the land and the sea. And he tells them to stop. Don't harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Now, seal language we're going to get into a lot more. Most of us, uh, the most famous seal in Revelation is the mark of the beast. Most of you will probably have heard about stuff like that. It might be like 666, maybe microchips. All that language is seal language. And what it's meaning here, in Revelation particularly, when they talk about seals, they're talking about belonging. This would have been ancient practices. You write the names of the people that you belong to, your sponsors. Um, the, the wealthy would sponsor events, and they would wear the, the marks of those who sponsored them. 
And what you hear have God saying is, wait, everything cannot finish until we have brought all of our people home. Everything cannot be ended, everything can't be stopped until the full number of the redeemed, of the people that I love, have been drawn in. And so you get this question of, okay, so God's slowing things down because he still wants more people in. But the question is, what, who are these people going to be? And it says here, then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. Now, this is an incredibly contentious passage of scripture. (laughs) If anyone's had any long discussions with Jehovah's Witnesses, a lot of your fights will end up right around here. Um, I don't wanna go into the the Jehovah's Witnesses perspective too much, mostly because I don't wanna slam them, but it doesn't make sense. It's not a good reading of scripture, really. Um, But I wanna think about what the early church would have heard when they heard this. 144 from the 12 tribes of Israel. And then it goes and it lists each of the tribes one by one. And it's long and monotonous, isn't it? 12,000 from this one, and 12,000 from that one, and 12,000 from that one, and 12,000 from that one. It's a very Jewish picture, which is fine. But if you remember some of our early churches, do you remember who some of their biggest conflicts were with? Smyrna and Philadelphia their biggest fights were with their local Jewish communities. They were being kicked out of the synagogues. They were, Christians were being called a crazy cult because they believed in this resurrected, crucified Messiah. And the Jews were kicking them out of the synagogues and they were losing their Roman protections because they were now just a crazy cult. And so if you're Smyrna or you're Philadelphia and you hear this, it's a little bit gutting, eh? You're going through hell on earth and who's the people God's gonna save? the very people that are kicking you out. Frustrating, eh? It raises up this huge question of who are, who's, who's the ones God's gonna save? Who are the people that God cares about? And for the, for the first early church, they could have heard this and at the first step, they would have been gutted. Honestly, most of their struggles come from the Jews that they're trying to relate with. They're losing productions in the synagogue. And what are they getting out of it? Nothing. There's this feeling of not fitting in with what's meant to be established there. And what I love about this is this is such a contemporary struggle that we face. I can guarantee almost every one of us in this room at some point will have walked into a church and felt like, God, I don't fit here. I just don't fit here. For the Christians, the Jews were the religious establishment. This is, they had the traditions, they had the scriptures, they had the songs, they knew all the right words to say, they knew all the prayers, and these Gentiles coming in were fresh. They didn't, they didn't have it all together. They didn't know the right prayers to pray. They didn't know when they were supposed to bow, when they were supposed to kneel, and, and that led to a lot of conflict. Man, how many of us feel that way when we engage with church? You're like, man, I come into church and it feels like everybody else loves all these songs that we're singing. God, I'm bored out of my mind. I don't know what we're doing here. Or you talk about Christian films and somebody's like, I love this Christian film. And you're like, ah. and then someone else, when they talk to you about what God's doing, you, they'll be like, oh, I feel blessed by the spirit of the Lord and the natural I was weak, but in the spirit I am lifted up and have strength and blessed be to God and my savior for lifting me up today. And you're like, cool, man. <laughs> I'm never gonna talk like that in my life. And for so many of us, we struggle to feel on the outside because we don't feel like we have it all together. We don't fit 
all the modes of what the church should be, of what the religious establishment could look like. And you read a text like this and you can feel like, I'm not sure there's a place for me here. This ultimate redeemed people that God is saving. When I think about heaven or whatever comes after death, or even when I think about church on Sundays, I just don't feel like I belong there. I don't fit with everybody else. This is the struggle. Anyone else relate to that? It's such a relatable feeling. But then, John does something that he does throughout this book. Remember, it happened with the lion and the lamb. John will hear something, and he will have a perspective on what it's like. But then he will turn and look, and he will have a deeper revelation of what it actually is. With Jesus, he heard lion, strength, conquering, just like Roman rulers, just like Caesar, going to come bust his way through. But when he turns to look, he sees a slain lamb. The way that Jesus conquers is not through strength or might or force. It's by laying down his life for his enemies is how the power of God conquers. And you find the same thing here. There's this 144,000 super Jewish, super strict quarters. It's really tight. There's a limited number. Only so many people can get in. And if you don't fit the mold, you're not going to be there. But what does John see? After this, I looked. And there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every tribe and nation, uh, people and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and they were holding palm branches in their hand. Can you feel the hope that would have surged through that early church? Man, how would Smyrna have felt when they heard that? Oh, wait, the people of God, it sounds like this. But wait, this is what it actually looks like. And what I love about this is often when people think about Revelation, often our perceptions are it's a really dark book with lots of death and slaughter and and destruction and only a tiny few are going to make it through in the end because most everyone's going to compromise. What I love about this is it talks about the great grace of God. Who Who is God able to redeem? A great multitude that no one could count. Can you feel the hope surging through this? God's hope is always to redeem as many as he can. As many as who will turn to God, there is space for them there. For that early church, there was space for them. And for us today, if you don't feel like you fit the mold, if you don't feel like a good Christian, if you don't feel like you've prayed all the right prayers, if you don't feel like you like the Bible, if you don't like singing, if you feel like all you can do is drag yourself in here and you have nothing left, that's okay because there's room for you here. There is a great multitude that no one can count from every tribe, nation, language, and people. And you stand before the throne of God. Know that there is room for you here. I mean, even more than that, beyond just being there, they begin to participate in this heavenly worship. In chapter four, we saw it massively, like the, the elders and the, the, the creatures were all singing, and it was this huge, incredible song. Well, what do we have here? This great multitude, they start the next worship song, and they cry out, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, and their worship is so inspiring that all the angels who were standing around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures They fell down on their face before the throne and they worshiped God too. The praise of God's great multitude was contagious in heaven. Our praise was contagious 
and they could not help but say, amen. Praise and glory, wisdom and thanks, honor, power and strength. How many again? Seven. Revelation does it all the time, shows those numbers. Be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Amazing, eh? So what numbers do in Revelation, again, with that 144,000, when Revelation gives you a number, try not to think of how many it is. It's telling you something about it, what kind of thing that it is. And 12 always represents the people of God. The 12 elders, the 12 tribes of Israel, you had the 12 apostles. It's this people that God selects for himself. And so this 144,000 isn't a select, tiny, remote group because that's all it can be. Those numbers are instead telling us it is the fullness of the people of God. 12 twelves. It's like, here's the people of God and here's the fullness of the people of God, the people's people of God. And here are the seven praises to God. Again, just perfect worship, all being caught up. And it's just incredible that there is room for you and the great diversity of God's family, which is here. Be encouraged. There's room for you here. There's room for you in the people of God's story. There's room for you in the church. There is room for you here in this church. Whether you come doubting or fearful, tired or weak, God has called you and there is space for you here incredibly encouraging and incredibly life-giving. But also, before we move on, I don't want to spend heaps of time with this, but I also, that picture, the great diversity of God's family is also an incredibly challenging image for us today. Um, throughout history, one of the challenges is we've often forgot the great diversity of God's family and the richness of language and culture and one of the struggles, the greatest struggles the church has faced and continues to face is how to live out the truth of that practically today. Martin Luther King Jr. in the uh, 1960s in the struggle for civil rights in America remarked, we have all this great language, but Sunday morning remains the most segregated hour in American life. The church struggles with that. We struggle with that. Here in Aotearoa, particularly as more ethnicities start coming in, as Maori begin to gain a resurgence and, and gain ownership and reality in this country, the church has to struggle with, particularly Baptist churches, not just us, but any, most Baptist churches have to struggle with the reality that on most Sunday mornings, we are 95% Pakia. And um, that's not really the picture we get about the fullness of God's community. And so I don't, I don't have any easy answers here as much as it's worth us thinking about as we look to reach out to Golden Sands and as we look to reach out to our wider community, what does it look like for us to maybe give up some of our cultural expressions so that we can have every nation, tribe, and language represented amongst us? It's a huge challenge and no one's gotten it perfect and we're not gonna fix it in a day. I'm just highlighting it to say, hey, we're not there yet. Help us get there, right? Great diversity of God's family. But then John doesn't let us off. It'd be really nice if John just finished there and you're like, cool, I feel good. There's a place for me. I'm going to close the book and not read anymore. But that's not, uh, Revelation very rarely lets you off uh, without any challenges. It is one of the most challenging books you will ever read in the Bible. And it goes on 
to an incredibly challenging passage right after that. Then one of the elders came and asked me, these in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? Now, as a quick note, if I were John here, that's got to be the most humiliating and frustrating circumstance ever. You're on a crazy trip where God's showing you all kinds of crazy things. You just saw a great multitude that you can't even count with nations that you don't even understand. And then one of the elders who's been sitting before the throne of God comes and asks you, hey, John, who are those people? Ah. I mean, I thought John was really had a lot of tact. He responded nicely. Ooh, sir, you know. I'd have been like, how am I supposed to know? I don't, I don't know. You tell me. So he goes, sir, you know. And the elder said, these are they that have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Now, I want to talk to you a bit, a bit about that word tribulation because that is a, um, a little bit of a buzzword for Revelation A. Anyone read the Left Behind series? You have like tribulation force and you had discussions. What is the tribulation? Is it seven years? Is it 15 years? Now, again, we're not all going to agree on this, particularly when we talk about end times theology. We're not all going to be in the same place. As, the, as your pastor who's been walking us through this book, I want to lovingly challenge us around what that word means. Often we think about crazy future events, but that's not often how that word is used in Revelation. That word tribulation actually shows up a lot in the first opening chapters. I mean, it's hard for some of you to see, but that word tribulation shows up in the first chapter. Um, John introducing himself, he says, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering. That word suffering is the same Greek word as tribulation. The companion in the tribulation and the kingdom and patient endurance, that's ours and Jesus. Um, in the letter to Smyrna, um, they faced a lot of difficulties. Uh, Jesus said to the letter in Smyrna, church in Smyrna, I know your afflictions. That word there is tribulation. I know your tribulations and your poverty. And then at the end of that letter, he says to them, you will suffer persecution for 10 days. That word again, tribulation. You will suffer tribulation. And then again, um, to the church in Tiatira, beware, there was a, there was a false uh, church leader who was trying to get the church to compromise their beliefs in God so that they could fit a bit easier in the Roman Empire, go sacrifice to idols, um, offer worship and incense up to Caesar as God because it'll make life a lot easier. That's what she was trying to do. And Jesus was notably frustrated with her doing that. And so the challenge he said is, beware I'm throwing her on a sickbed. And those who commit adultery with her, so go along with her ideas, I'm throwing into great distress unless they repent. Again, that word distress is tribulation. So what you find over and over again is tribulation, rather than just being some future event, this was a lived and present reality for that church. They, they were in tribulation. They were struggling as it was. John introduces himself, hey, I am a companion in your tribulation. Smyrna, you, you've been in tribulation and you will be in tribulation. And if you don't turn away from this false prophetess, that will lead you into further tribulation. So in this passage here, Oopsie, one too many. When it says, these are they who've come out of the great tribulation, it's not talking about some crazy future off event. Tribulation is the, the metaphor that they use for each of our daily struggle to follow Jesus in a world that does not mesh with those values. In an empire that's trying to lead us away from God, we struggle to follow him. And that struggle takes on different forms. For some of us, 
Um, that requires inner work around our own values, around our own temptations. For some of us, that actually means physical persecution from governments and people groups as we get isolated. And so what's challenging here is John said, look, there is a multitude. There is room for you, but there will be tribulation. Those who have gotten there have, washed, have come out of struggle. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And so what this reminds us is that it costs to follow Jesus. There's room for you. Whether you fit in or whether you don't, whether you know the right words to sing or whether you don't, there is room for you, but it will cost you. To follow Jesus will mean you have to make decisions you don't necessarily like to make. It means you will have to live in a way that does not fit with modern 21st century New Zealand. There will be decisions that you make that will not make sense to your coworkers or to your neighbors because of your radical discipleship to Jesus. The, the road of the empire leads this way. The road of the lamb to the kingdom leads this way. And there will always be struggle in that. Always. It costs something to follow Jesus. And we have to be aware of that. One of the greatest struggles that I think we in the West have not been able to wrap our head around is that when anything goes wrong and we face difficulties, we feel like God has abandoned us and nothing makes sense anymore and the church has failed us. And Revelation here is saying, guys, it's hard. It's hard. I get it. It's going to be hard. But, and this is where I love what this, this chapter finishes, following Jesus costs. Usually it costs you everything. But what you get is this promise. And this promise you should read to yourself every day. They are the ones before the throne of God, right in the presence of God, and you serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne, he shelters them with his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat, for the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Following Jesus costs, it really does, but what we get from it is far greater than any price we pay. To be known in the presence of God day and night, right at the center of perfect love. Remember, God is perfect love. He's perfect hope. He's perfect truth. When you are in the presence of God, you are known. There's no more hiding. There's no more needing to pretend. There's no more walls you have to put up. You can be before God. And you will be known perfectly and loved perfectly. And the great hope of the gospel is that that one day when Christ returns, this is the world that we will live in. When Jesus comes back and he makes everything right, when he fixes every problem, the sun will no longer scorch down on us. The toil of the day will no longer exact the cost that it used to. The lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. Again, Revelation just loves doing that. These oxymorons that don't fit now fit. The lamb is now the shepherd. 
of the flock. He will lead you to springs of living water where you will never thirst again. The struggles that you carry, the hunger that's within you, that dissatisfaction that keeps you turning to thing after thing after thing, constantly looking for a home, that hunger is met in God. And the grief that you carry from the price that you have paid, he will wipe every tear from your eye. Following Jesus costs, but it is well worth the price. There is room for you here. What I love about this passage is the hope that it brings. In many ways, Revelation 7 is a perfect retelling of the gospel story to us. The gospel story that has brought so many of us hope and life. While we were far away and we thought there was no place for us, God has made a place for you in his kingdom. Whatever your background, whatever your language, whatever your outlook, there is space for you here amongst us. But to follow Christ, it will cost you. It will mean you have to make decisions you don't like to. It will mean self-denial. It'll mean laying down some things as you try to follow the lamb into a new kingdom. But that price is well worth it. Because that hope that we will experience one day, we also get to experience now. The hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so today, I just want to finish on the simple, most basic of messages. The message that brought us here and the message that keeps us here and the message that we always have to come back to, which is follow Jesus follow him again. Choose to follow him again. Some of us made that decision once, but then also there are days when you're like, oh, stuff it, I'm over it. I'm just done, really. For some of you, it may have literally been walking into church this morning as you think about attending another Sunday service and you're like, oh God, I'm done. I've been to so many of these Sunday services. I've heard so many of these sermons. I've heard so many of these messages. I've sang all these songs before. What am I doing here? To you, Revelation would remind you, don't give up on following Jesus. Today, choose again to follow him. Choose to orient your whole life around him because he is your hope he is your path, he is your way, he is your future. So if you are weary from following Jesus, take heart because it is worth it. It is worth it. And if you've been on the fence and you're umming and awing and you're like, oh, I don't really know, give it a try. Follow Jesus because there's room for you here both in the kingdom of God, but also here at Golden Sands Baptist, whether you're a sinner or a saint. Um, many of you have walked by our banner there that has all the different names. We genuinely mean that. Whether you can sing like Adele or just growl to yourself quietly, whether you came in stoked with life or you are weak and weary, you are welcome here in God's great family. Here you can be known. Here you can find community. Here you can follow Jesus with a group of people 
who are just as messed up and weird as you are. <laughs> we're quirky, we fight, but we're all following Jesus together. Today, follow Jesus so that on that day when he returns, we will all be part of that great multitude singing. We will all be worshiping and our praises will be so infectious that it will catch up all of heaven and all of creation in the praise. And God will be all in all and we will feel that hope. So would you stand with me? We're gonna, as we finish, um, we're gonna kick it old school. You can't, you can't have a Sunday where you sing, have those lyrics and not sing the song, right? You, salvation belongs, you, you gotta sing the song. So we're gonna sing that song together again and we're gonna praise and we're gonna worship Jesus. But if you are at a space where God is doing something in you, pay attention to that. Because genuinely as a church, all we have to offer you is Jesus. We don't have slick programs. We can still hear our kids shouting from the room next door. Our heater broke the other week. We're a ragtag motley crew, but we love Jesus and he brings change. Follow him today. So let's sing that song and let's offer ourselves up to God and worship. Thanks.